Today's episode of the Naked Preacher podcast is brought to you by Church Spouse Editors Incorporated. Let's face it, editing is hard. You spend all week on a sermon or an article or a made-up sponsor for your podcast, and when you're done, it's your baby. It's beautiful. It's funny. It's perfect to you. But how can you really tell if it's good? Show it to your spouse. With the painful honesty of an Old Testament prophet, a preacher's spouse can, without mercy or remorse, cut your creation down to size. That's why, if you're brave enough, I'd invite you to send your work over to Church Spouse Editors Incorporated, where a team of seasoned ministers' wives and husbands will happily rip it to shreds. That joke you think is hilarious? That illustration you spent two hours finding? That powerful mic drop ending? (laughs) They don't care. It's gone. My wife's a church spouse editor. When I read her these sponsor intros, she rolled her eyes, didn't laugh, and said they were too long. I cried, told her thanks, and paid her. And that's why this ad is over. Thanks, honey. Church Spouse Editors Incorporated. They'll show you just how good it isn't. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Naked Preacher podcast, the show where preachers get together to reveal who they are outside the pulpit. Uh, We've got a great show for you today, an important show, I think. Uh, It's called Preachers Experience Trauma, uh, because preachers, just like anybody else in the world, are uh, not immune to uh, enduring traumatic events, uh, abusive events in their lives, Um, and many ministers do. Uh, And it influences how they uh, serve the people that they're called to serve. It influences how they are as um, parents, how they are as spouses, all of that stuff. But what happens when a minister uh, feels led and is bold enough, brave enough, vulnerable enough to share about his or her trauma, abuse, in front of the people that he or she is called to serve? Well, it just so happens that I have a friend who has gone through that experience himself and is joining us today to talk about uh, what that was like uh, sharing his experience with uh, trauma and abuse uh, in front of his congregation. His name is Jacob Toper. He is a pastor out in Norman, Oklahoma. He pastors North Haven Church out there, and I'm grateful that he is uh, joining us today uh, to share his story with us. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the nature of this conversation, this issue, uh, could be triggering for folks who have uh, experience with trauma or abuse themselves. And so just keep that in mind as you uh, decide uh, to listen further. But for those who um, do join in on the conversation, I, I pray that you'll find it uh, helpful and instructive and challenging uh, because just because we may not hear stories like this on a regular daily basis, uh, those stories are out there. Um, They are in 
the jobs that we work, they're in the families we inhabit, and they are certainly in the churches where we worship. So I'm grateful for my friend Jacob for helping shed a light on that, and I uh, am excited for you to listen to our conversation now. Well, I'm grateful to welcome to the podcast today uh, one of the most phenomenal and most muscular uh, pastors that I know, uh, my buddy Jacob Toper from out in Oklahoma, and uh, he is a good friend of mine. Uh, we got to know each other through a uh, fellows program through the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and uh, yeah, I'm glad to, to have him on uh, for this important topic, this important episode. So, Jacob, welcome. Hey, good to see you, Paul. <laughs> Great. Awesome. <laughs> Enthusiastic. Coming in hot. I like it. I'm ready. Um, yeah. Well, since you are, uh, why don't you take a minute and tell me about how you got into ministry? I uh, did not really grow up in church. I uh, didn't really have a super uh, churchy family. And so I actually got into some trouble when I was, oh, I guess, freshman, sophomore in high school and the classic oh, yeah. bargaining made a made a deal with God that if God would get me out of the trouble, then, you know, I would be a, a good boy. And so part of that deal meant that I was going to go to church and, you know, learn the things, do the things. I really, I really tried to live up to my end of, of that real classic bargaining thing. And so I was told by my church that that meant I had to go to youth camp, that all good boys go to youth camp. And so uh, that summer rolls around and you know, I'm a sophomore in high school and I'm going to youth camp with what felt like me and a, a busload of middle school girls. Uh, and we would go to these and it was pretty classic youth camp, you know, hyper emotional, uh, more than a little bit, you know, emotionally yeah. manipulative. And we'd go to these worship uh, worship sessions, you know, the whole the whole group would just be bawling and in tears. And I'm looking around going, what in the world is happening right now? Uh, but afterward, I would pull these people aside and ask them, like, hey, what what gives? Like, what what was that all about? I mean, genuinely curious. Uh, yeah. And over and over, I heard these really compelling stories um, about how, you know, kids that were cutting themselves or kids that, you know, their parents were getting divorced because dad had had several affairs and they were wondering, mm. you know, like, if dad could lie to mom like that, has dad been lying to me? You know, does dad really love me? Because they found out dad didn't really love mom. You know, I mean, some, some legitimate, what I would call today, just, you know, wounds, trauma. And that in that moment that was emotionally manipulative, albeit, they felt like God was meeting them in their woundedness mm. and that there was hope for them. You know, and I just, was entranced by these these stories and it was over and over again people telling me these stories of where god was really just just being present in their woundedness and so at the end of the week i remember telling my youth pastor that i, I want to find a way to do this for a living how, how can i listen to these stories and get paid for it <laughs> um, and i remember him telling me the classic you know going into ministry line that if you can do anything else and be happy doing it then go do that. 
<laughs> which really just made me want to do this more. And I'm glad I did. I, I love what I do, but that's, yeah. that's really where it started. And that's still sort of where it comes back to today is, is listening to people's stories and, and seeing yeah. uh, through their eyes where they, where they find God in their pain. Mm, that's awesome. So you're definitely, uh, you love that relational piece of, mm-hmm. of the calling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, um, you know, before we get into the meat of this episode, uh, I, I have to share with the listeners one of the most phenomenal things that uh, I know about you. And um, it, is, it is that you are the only preacher that I know of who also has a background in uh, mixed martial arts, uh, competitive uh, fighting. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, like, like, uh, in the octagon type of, uh, well, yeah, it was, it was, um, you know, B level fighting. So it was only a hexagon. We could, we could only afford six sides, um, but it was, yeah, it's chain link, chain link hexagon. It was a lot of fun. I, uh, really, really enjoyed that sort of part of my life. I was, uh, when I was in high school, I was a wrestler and there was a guy named Randy Couture who was in the UFC at that time, an Olympic wrestler that was just doing really well. And I remember watching him with my dad going, I'm pretty sure I could do that. <laughs> and so then when I, when I got to college, uh, there was a MMA gym a couple blocks from where my house was. And I remember walking over to the gym and sitting down with the owner and telling him, you know, I would. I wanted to be the the chaplain of the gym. And if he would let me train for free, because I didn't have a dime, uh, then I would be the chaplain of the gym. <laughs> Finding a way to market my, <laughs> my limited resources. And so I was there at that gym uh, as the chaplain for about six years, um, fighting, fighting with all of these guys alongside with some of the some of my best friends uh, wow. there. Um, and and it was the polar opposite of the kind of people I was serving on Sunday mornings in church because yeah. I had a little part-time yeah. job at a little country church uh, at the same time. Uh, it's really, really wonderful, wonderful wow. time in my life. How cool though. I mean, that, that, that opened you up to a completely different population yeah. of people. <laughs> it sure did. Man. And they weren't wow. used to people like me either. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they, I'm sure they weren't. That was, that was true of my little church on Sunday too, though. They weren't used to people like me either. And so, Have you found people yet who are used to people like you? You know, there, there's some of that at my church now. I remember uh, Pam Durso was the interim uh-huh. pastor for my church oh, um, cool. before I came here. And I remember talking to her before I took the job and, and she said uh, confidentially, so I'll just say it publicly, uh, <laughs> That, that North Haven was kind of in some ways an island of misfit toys, uh, that y- there were a ton of really bright, smart people uh, that were just kind of strange. And I remember thinking, I think I like these people. Uh, awesome. one, of the, one of the top words that the church used to describe themselves on the uh, survey was quirky. <laughs> And they argued, I learned later, they argued for a long time about whether to put that on their uh, 
church profile or not because they didn't want to scare people away. <laughs> no, I, I think I've got to be at a quirky church. That's awesome. Well, you are definitely well suited for, uh, for, for a place like that. I'm not going to um, read too much into that, Paul. No, you. no, please don't. No, please don't because I don't want you to kick my butt. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, so no, Paul, our- I don't, I don't fight for free. that's that's one of my favorite that's one of my favorite lines um all right you are on a show called uh preachers experience trauma uh because you are a preacher who has uh experienced trauma right and you've been open about that in front of your congregation so Mm -hmm. would you mind sharing you know at your own comfort level about your trauma and uh the experience of of sharing that in front of your church uh, absolutely. Paul, I'm, man, I'm just really grateful you have a show like this. I think trauma's, whew, it's just really important and it affects us all, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a survivor of sexual abuse and physical abuse um, growing up. And so as, you know, statistically, what it's one in seven dudes are, one in three or four women. Uh, I'm not sure the statistics are accurate there. It's probably much a lot more people than that. But anyway... I'm one of those people. I'm a survivor of of that. And I chose to disclose that to my church. Uh, we were going to have a series at the church, which included sermons and Bible studies, Sunday school curriculum, and then sort of a Wednesday night emphasis uh, talking about trauma. And so um, in a Sunday morning sermon, I'm sure there are people out here that are getting real itchy listening to me tell this story. And let me be perfectly clear. I do not, I do not recommend everybody do this. And you'll see as, you know, as my story plays out why, but so I disclosed with my church in a Sunday morning setting, um, not with the kids in the room while the kids were off, you know, an extended session that I was a survivor of sexual abuse and talked about that very briefly. That wasn't, you know, the whole subject of the sermon, but just sort of to introduce that we're going to be doing this series on trauma. Uh, And then the next three or four weeks were some of just the most magical weeks of my pastorate at the church. Real, real kind of incredible. Uh, There were about 20, 20, 25 uh, men who disclosed to me or to the group um, that was meeting on Wednesday nights or to their Sunday school uh, and that they were also victims of sexual abuse. Many of them, um, and this was right as that Houston paper had published their uh, article on sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention Mm -hmm. and clergy. And so a lot of my people are uh, recovering Southern Baptists and had been abused by pastors and youth pastors and Sunday school teachers. It was really shocking. And so um, that, that journal piece being published was what prompted some of them to, to mm. disclose. So it was all kind of about the same time. We've got 2025 men and a few women, but it was mostly men uh, yeah. who were disclosing. Uh, and some just didn't know how they knew. I mean, it's, it was almost comical looking back at it with some of the guys because they knew they needed to get it off their chest, but they didn't know how. So they, we would be standing around drinking coffee and one of them would just kind of blurt out that he had been abused by his youth pastor. And we're all going, Oh, 
we're, we're kind of drinking coffee here. And another guy <laughs> across the thing said, yeah, me too. You know, and that's how two of our men yeah. disclosed around wow. the coffee pot. I mean, it was just real interesting. It was uh, a kind of time in the life of the church. So we have three, four weeks of just really, really incredible ministry, I think, as yeah. we're naming trauma. And sexual abuse in men was not the focus. It was trauma in general. And a lot of other things happened. But this is, you know, part of my story that I'm telling here. So that's kind of what I'm focusing on. Um, and then about three weeks in is uh, when something really interesting kind of happened in uh, the sort of the sabotage started, mm. uh, which I found super, oh, it was painful as all get out then, but it's interesting to, to kind of study as a case study. Now um, we had, and this and mostly women, uh, a few men, but mostly women who began sort of to sabotage this, this sort of movement in the church. Um, we had one woman stand up to make announcements at the end of the service one Sunday and make a jab about um, how she was had the courage to make these announcements, even though so-and-so didn't, because so-and-so, you know, and she didn't say this part, but so-and-so had disclosed in one of the Wednesday night meetings um, that he had been abused, and it was one of the reasons for his timidity to not mm. speak in public. Uh, and one of the reasons he always said no to worship leadership. And so she had heard that. And then a couple of weeks later, stood up to make announcements and said, well, good thing I'm up here making these announcements because we know so-and-so could never have the courage to do this yeah, in front of the whole church. I mean, that's, a, that's really terrible. It's a really yeah. terrible thing. And he left the church, you know, oh, a wow. place that, that was safe for him to disclose, he learned real quickly, was not safe for him to be out as a sexual survivor, sexual abuse survivor. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him. Um, he had to do what was best and what was safe for him. And that place was no longer, my church was no longer safe for him. And so I had a, a children's minister at the time um, who, uh, it, it's kind of a complicated story, but she were little church, about 120 people in worship, um, she had sort of outgrown her position. So she wanted to be made the associate pastor at a church that didn't have an associate pastor nor the financial means to create that position. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so that was mixed up in it. And in her frustration with me, she started a blog about me where uh, she blogged about my sexual abuse where she blamed my uh, not treating uh, women in the workplace well on my having been, um, she used kind of graphic language to describe it, blanked yeah. as, a, as a kid. I mean, which was just shocking. She's um, from and a, so, and from she a didn't, minister you know, of she, the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, she's not, she's not at the church anymore. Um, but it was just this real bizarre, uh, and there are several, there are several other little stories here, but those are the two absolutely sort of most graphic, mm -hmm. uh, stories. And so, um, so for as much as that season was really incredible with ministry, man, it was fraught with some real landmines, um, and some destruction too. Yeah. Uh, and on this side of it, you know, trying to do the autopsy, 
Uh, there's a lot of things kind of still left up in the air. Was that the right move? Was it not? I'm not real sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely want to to be perfectly clear that I am not on here advocating for other pastors to do what I did. Not right. without. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have to discern your own story and your own context, and and also you know for the for the freedom that it has given you and. Um, those other uh, people, mostly men in, in your congregation, um, you know, they're the challenges, the pitfalls, uh, the sabotage um, that that came as a result that you that you didn't expect. And so I think that's um, uh, one of the reasons it's great to have you on to share this story, because you can present um, the both sides of it, the fact that it is, and, and it was a beautiful thing for your church, but that it also did not come without uh, cost and without pain and, and just unpredictable. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I noticed in there was you said about 20 to 25 people right. and that you're in a church with a, an active membership of about 120 or so. Yeah, probably 200 active membership. Okay. Uh, okay. 120 on a Sunday. Yeah. So, that's I mean, that's, that. that's a huge chunk. I mean, that really is. Um, of course, you talk about those statistics. If you, I don't know why churches feel like we're immune to the mm-hmm. statistics that apply to everybody else. But, you know, if, if you got a church where there's, um, 200 people on a Sunday and, you know, uh, 25 of those have, uh, you know, that that's one in eight, that's even less mm-hmm. than what the statistics say. I mean, that, well, yeah, I mean, but ha- if half are men, then you're doing, you know, one in four hundred men, 25 disclose 2025, yeah. you know, one in five, one in four, which is a lot more than one in one in seven, yeah. you know, yeah. and we can assume that there were, you know, at least a couple that has happened and haven't disclosed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it just, it just gets to what a, a prevalent, um, but beneath the surface um, issue that, that this is that so many struggle with that we, that we see on a regular basis, a weekly basis. Um, so I, I would love, you know, as you, uh, have been performing that, that autopsy. And, um, do you have any thoughts on, on why you think, uh, you had the reaction that you did, uh, particularly from, from those women? Uh, this, I think this would be a good time to pull out that Brene Brown quote. Yeah. Uh, If you'll, if you want to read that, I'll I'll sort of springboard off of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, had shared with, with Jacob this quote that I found uh, prior to our, our conversation today from Brene Brown's book, uh, Daring Greatly, uh, where she talks about the courage to be vulnerable. And um, Brene's, uh, Brene, like we're on the first name basis, we hang out all the time. Uh, Dr. Brown's uh, research um, focuses uh, primarily on women, or at least it had at this, at the the point that she wrote this book. And um, she said uh, that she had an interesting experience um, 
after a uh, conference one one time where she was uh, speaking to a large group of, of women. Um, and uh, afterwards, she was signing some books and, and things uh, like that. Uh, but uh, then she shares, uh, and I'm going to read this. This is from Daring Greatly, uh, page 83. Um, she says, a tall, thin man who I guess was in his early 60s followed his wife to the front of the room. Um, and uh, he was wearing a, a yellow Izod golf sweater, an image I'll never forget. Uh, spoke with the wife for a few minutes. Um, and uh, she goes through some of their conversations. Um, and then uh, the, the husband hung around and while the, the wife uh, went off to the back of the room and, and he said, I'll, I'll be right there, honey, I'll be right there. Um, and Bernice uh, Brown says that the conversation uh, that he had with her started innocently enough. He said, I like what you have to say about shame. It's interesting. I thanked him and waited. I could tell there was more coming. He leaned in closer and asked, I'm just curious, what about men in shame? What have you learned about us? I felt instant relief. This wasn't going to take long because I didn't know much. I explained, I haven't done many interviews with men. I've just studied women. And he nodded and said, well, that's convenient. And I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up in defense. I forced a smile and asked, why convenient? In the very high voice that I use when I'm uncomfortable. He replied by asking me, if I really wanted uh, to know. And I told him, yeah, which was a half truth. I was on my guard. Then his eyes welled up with tears. He said, we have shame, deep shame. But when we men reach out and share our stories, we get the emotional crap beat out of us. I struggled to maintain eye contact with him. His raw pain had touched me, but I was still trying to protect myself just as I was about to make a comment about how hard men are on each other, he said, and before you say anything about those mean coaches or bosses or brothers and fathers being the only ones, he pointed toward the back of the room where his wife was standing. And he said, my wife and daughters, the ones you signed all those books for, they'd rather see me die on top of my white horse than watch me fall off. You say you want us to be vulnerable and real, but come on. You can't stand it. It makes you sick to see us like that. <laughs> um, and I think that that's a reality that you ran into. Uh, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that's, um, I didn't know, I haven't read that book yet. Um, but when we kind of had our initial conversation and he told me about that quote, a lot of the autopsy sort of came into place, especially I'm thinking back to the story I shared about the one making announcements who specifically called out the lack of courage in one of the men who had been, you know, abused uh, and had fallen off his white horse. And so um, she was the one going ahead and driving the spear through his heart, sort of. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I know that's not unique to women. That's not what I want to want to do sure. um, yeah. by any means, uh, but it is an interesting phenomenon that I watched watched play out, and I think to my own my own wife, um, you know, when people when people around you sort of disclose and start to grow uh, and become someone new, which we're all doing, right? 
uh, we're all we're always and consistently confronted with sort of our own crisis. Do we grow into someone that's accommodating of this new person? Um, do we grow with them uh, or or not? I was, you know, an, I was an MMA fighter when my wife fell in love with me. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm a pastor who talks about my own sexual abuse with my own church. I mean, those are two very different versions of Jake. And I've been different people along the way. And those are two, you know, quite different versions of, you know, my masculinity. Yeah. Uh, and she has had to embrace me and grow with me and learn to love the new me mm-hmm. at each step of the way, which has been no easy uh, task because as kind of started off, I am a lot and unique. <laughs> um, but I think she's she's really the model um, of what a good ally kind of looks like. Yeah, uh, someone willing to hold space, uh, grow with that uh, doesn't take the responsibility for healing anyone else, um, but neither shirks her own desire to. I mean, her own responsibility to sort of to accept other people and grow with them. Uh, And that generally is something church is just not real good at on Mm -hmm. any front (laughs) is holding space uh, for people to be messy or, or broken or to work through their own things. Um, You know, we're, we're very, very good at putting on a face um, and coming and acting like everything's okay. And then falling apart at home, God forbid we ever fall apart fall apart at church or that, you know, what if my Sunday school finds out that I don't have a good relationship with my spouse? Oh my God. You know, the, the yeah, yeah, the extents we go to, to protect ourselves uh, from being vulnerable. And there's a reason for it because not every church deserves our vulnerability. I mean, not every church is a safe place to be vulnerable. I mean, we learned that my North Haven church, Norman, Oklahoma, was not a safe place uh, for at least one of those men to disclose who's now no longer with us. We know that my own disclosure, you know, uh, wound up in a blog for all the world to see. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, again, can't be over explicit on saying, pastors, I am not advocating for you to share your vulnerability with your church if your church doesn't deserve it. Because uh, they don't, and that's yeah. an acknowledgement of fact, not a statement of <laughs> a worth. Right, right. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's so wise. I appreciate you um, continuing to to state that over um, and over. Yeah, yeah. The the measure of your success or, or worth or uh, goodness as a minister is not dependent upon you know the level of your disclosure of of your vulnerabilities. Mm, no, no, that, no. That is um that is something that um you respond to through sensitivity to the spirit and knowing, again, knowing your context, knowing your, uh, mm-hmm. the spaces that deserve uh, and have earned that right to, uh, to receive that. Um, yeah. I think what you, what you said is just, it hits so much on um, masculinity and in, in our culture and the way that we uh, view it and uh, how the admission of being victims of abuse mm-hmm. um, rubs up against that idea of like the, 
man from the book was saying, you know, the, the, the savior on the white horse and it puts um, people into a place of cognitive dissonance where they have to uh, wrestle with, okay, which, which of these am I going to withhold? Am I going to keep hold of them? Am I going to keep hold of this unattainable, unrealistic image of uh, masculine perfection? Or am I going to see um, this man as a person um, mm-hmm. who, who is a man, but who has um, you know, scars and, um, and a story and flaws and everything just like everybody else, you know, uh, why, mm-hmm. why should, um, you as a man be held to, to any different standard of, of strength, uh, mm-hmm. than anybody else. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, um, a great observation, my friend. I appreciate you sharing on that. And, uh, I'd also love to get your thoughts on, you know, uh, what, we can do as ministers for the boys and the girls, uh, the women and the men uh, in our pews who are hiding behind shame as victims of abuse. You know, how can we uh, create spaces where people do feel safe and taking healing steps toward dealing with their trauma? Right. Um, I read a book this year called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, mm-hmm. on trauma that was an absolute sort of worldview changer for me. Um, essentially, I think, man, it's all, it's all about trauma, which is why I appreciate appreciate this podcast so much and what you're doing, Paul. I think you're ahead of the curve there. Um, but I, I, I do not, you know, just to be a broken record, think disclosure <laughs> leaders is the necessarily the best way to go about it. But I think we do have to be explicit about creating a place that's safe for people to disclose. Um, Not explicitly saying this is a safe place because it might not be, Mm -hmm. uh, but explicit about, about creating one. And it might never be, you know, the whole church. It might be that you've created pockets, uh, Sunday Mm -hmm. schools, um, small groups, uh, just maybe it's a Tuesday night, you know, D group or whatever, uh, where you're creating pockets where it's okay, not just to be a sexual abuse survivor, uh, but to be messy and to be honest and to say, well, my, you know, my relationships are, are really struggling. Um, my faith is, is really struggling. Uh, those, I think those are deeply connected. Um, yeah. The church creating space for people to be people fallible as we are without, you know, condemnation and judgment uh, and allowing people to sort of disclose the, 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 the pains of our lives that we're still struggling to get through and the traumas that have made us (laughs) the guarded and cautious people that we are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a very realistic uh, piece of advice. And, and hopefully one of the things that we can do, because, yeah, uh, again, not advocating for that, you know, full disclosure in front of the entire congregation or in front of people who haven't really um, earned that, that right to be privy to um, your story and, and, and your trauma. But I think 
it, the, the least we can do as ministers is, is be vocal about the fact that, you know, even if the church itself isn't a safe space, even if your Sunday school class isn't a safe space or whatever, I am a safe space. You, right. you can, you can talk with me, you can speak with me. And, mm-hmm. um, this is not something that you have to carry yeah. on your own. Absolutely. Um, and, and if, uh, but if you say that, then you by God better be a safe person. Absolutely. Better, you better do the work. Yes. Be able to sit with people in their pain without trying to fix them or flee. Yes. Say that again. Sit, sit with people in their pain. I, yeah. I think you have to be able to, you have to do the internal work where you have the capacity to sit with people in their pain without either trying to fix it or flee from it. Mm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I had a professor in divinity school who talked about um, how one of the one of the ways ministers uh, go wrong most often is when we are with people who are going through the crucifixion and we just want to push them toward the resurrection. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's that's what you're talking about is, is fighting that urge, you know, being able to sit in the pain of those, those three days of death and however long that might be, whatever it might look like in that person's journey, not, Mm -hmm. not push them to, okay, we can just get over it or whatever else, because how dare we um, assume that we know what their experience is like, you know, but we can be like Job's friends in the first part of Job (laughs) where they're, they're smart enough to just shut up and listen and love and, and here. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's what we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Amen. so, you know, we're talking about trauma and, and we've been talking about it in very, uh, specific, you know, terms of you know, maybe sexual abuse or, or physical abuse, but, uh, people can also have traumatic experiences, uh, from church itself. Amen. Uh, and, uh, I would love to maybe, zoom out for a second and talk about, um, get your thoughts on how churches uh, and yep. pastors can be sources of trauma. Um, yep. I think it, it'd be good to talk about how we can be good stewards of uh, church and Amen. our roles as spiritual leaders so that we are positive points of references in people's faith. You know, I, I, I think that many of us have preachers, pastors, uh, churches in our lives that we look back on as negative points of reference. And there are a ton of people in this world today, we all know, who want nothing to do with the church because the the traumatic experience where pastors and and churches have been negative points of reference. Um, And so I think we need to recognize the power that that we have as, um, you know, these people of the cloth, so to speak. And we have to wield that responsibly. So what, what are some of your thoughts on that? Man, I immediately think of a story. There was a young couple who were, uh, they were grad students at Oklahoma University here in Norman who had been attending our church for a little while. And before they joined, they made an appointment to come sit down and talk with me um, and tell me a little bit of their story first. The wife in of the, the wife of this couple uh, shared that she had an older sister growing up um, 
who went two years older than her when the elder sister was in the youth group, uh, she came out that she was gay and was, uh, was a very conservative, very conservative Southern Baptist church. Um, the church did not uh, condone that. And not only did they not condone that, they they made her leave the church. They sent her to conversion therapy, uh, not once, but twice. And then wow. when she came back from conversion therapy the second time, still gay, uh, they made the whole, you know, family leave the church. They were, none of them were, were welcome there. And so uh, it was... A couple years after that, this all sort of played out over about three years. And when the older sister uh, was about to turn 18, she killed herself. And so uh, this woman in my office is telling me the story about her sister. uh, And she says, you know, she cannot shake the question that what if her sister had uh, found love in the community that had raised her and changed her diapers you know, and held her while she was, was crying and because um, they had been in that church since birth. What if she had found love there? Would she have still, would she have still killed herself? And she didn't know. She's not trying to blame it on the church, right, um, right. you know, uh, but, but it was a question she said that she couldn't shake. And she said, before we join your church, we want to know if our sister would have been in love here. Um, and I thought, what a, what a powerful um, and convicting question for any, any church. Would, mm. would my sister have been loved here? And frankly, um, I thought, why is this person still in church? Why mm. is, after what happened to her sister, how is she still here? There are a lot of really good reasons to leave, <laughs> to leave yeah. a church. Well, I mean, the sister herself was kicked out of yes. church, right? The whole yes. thing, like you said. Yeah, I mean, this is spiritual trauma uh, to the max. Um, but this this woman is still here, still wanting to be a part of a congregation, um, and so. I, 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 that's that's who I think of um, when we talk about spiritual trauma. That that's the people whose feet I think I want to sit at and learn from. How in the world are you still a Christian? Why do you still believe in the church after everything you've been through? Teach me, uh, teach me your ways, because you know after after trauma is much less significant than that. There are days when I'm ready to throw in the dang towel and give up <laughs> on it all. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I've got I've got a lot a lot to learn um, about healing from spiritual trauma. And the good thing is, there are people in our pews that can teach us um, mm-hmm. that have these traumas, and despite all reasons to the contrary, are still here and are still Christians. Yeah. To me, that's that's a miracle. That doesn't really answer your question, uh, but I think it's one worth marveling at for a minute. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you, you mentioned still Christian. That's funny you say that because I'm listening to uh, David Gushy's book by that same title right now, Still mm-hmm. Christian. Um, David Gushy, for those who um, are listening and might be unfamiliar, is uh, 
one of the preeminent uh, ethicists, Christian ethicists uh, of the last several decades and spent a lot of time in Baptist life, but has really been um, bouncing around all, all throughout Christian culture and, and evangelical culture. Um, but he, he talks a lot about, um, it, you know, some of the trauma that he has experienced um, because, you know, he said one thing and this group didn't like it, or he said this thing and the group on the opposite side of that issue didn't like it. You know, how, um, you know, he's been maligned by, by so many groups and um, hated by, by so many churches, taken advantage of by people in um, so many different uh, positions of political power and, and things uh, that kind of like you, you were saying, like, a logical person would look at this and be like, why do you still, exactly. why do you still mess with yeah. the church? Um, but, but he kind of lays out, I think in his introduction that, you know, he's, he's convicted of, of two things that Jesus is uh, his savior mm-hmm. and um, that he is, he, he deserves his entire life and that there's something special something worth fighting for something worth believing mm-hmm. in in this thing that jesus instituted called the church and and i think we do have a lot to learn from those who have um really been through the ringer with church experiences and uh would like you say have every uh, excuse mm-hmm. uh, to tap out, but yep. have not done so. It, it's, Every yeah. Baptist woman, pastor, preacher mm. that I know, frankly, right? Why right. in the world are they running churches instead of companies fighting to make $35,000 a year when they have the gifts, you know, to go into the secular world and absolutely crush it? There yeah. must be a God. <laughs> There you go. That's a, a wonderful proof of God's existence. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it is for me, though. It really yeah. it yeah. is for me. Um, well, I think what, what we can do is um, do our best to be, uh, you know, like I said, positive points of reference in, in the faith of those who, who are growing. You know, I, th- I think about people who um, you mentioned earlier. Uh, about like spiritual manipulation and, and trying mm-hmm. to take advantage of emotional moments or, or whatever mm-hmm. else, or, um, you know, just uh, treating the Bible or treating sermons um, as, as opportunities to um, manipulate people or, right. or do things that ultimately I know in my life have caused me more spiritual harm than, than spiritual good. And uh, I, I've, that, ha- that having been my experience, I try to um, make different decisions when I find myself in, in positions that those before me um, chose to take advantage of. So I think, I think we all have a responsibility to, to use our positions um, well. Amen. Uh, all right, buddy. Well, it's been a, a great conversation, and uh, we have come to a time uh, where we close out with the skinvitation which is an opportunity for you to uh, answer three uh, rapid fire questions that invite you into a little bit more vulnerability. All right. Uh, All right. Let's go. So Jacob, I I can't wait to hear your responses. First one is what is one mistake you have made in ministry? Oh Lord. Just one, which one you want, Paul? Uh, (laughs) I'll I'll tell you one. I have a, a dear friend here at my church, 
I've known a long time. We go back a ways uh, before my time here at the church. Uh, And we cuss. That's a lot of people may not know this. Pastors can cuss too. So So I uh, wrote him. Does that need to be a future episode upon preachers uh, cussing? No, no, I'm not. (laughs) You can find somebody else. I'll tell you. Here's why. Here's why. Because my dumb self wrote him a letter and I used a curse word in the letter. Uh on North Haven letterhead. Mm. Uh, It was a real kind letter saying, I loved him. You know, all these, all these great things. Uh, It was actually the end of year, like contribution letter. Um, And he thought it was real funny, you know, shared it. Uh, And so my, when my children's minister got mad at me and started her blog, Uh, she got, she got a copy of this Mm. and posted it on her blog uh, and there are a lot of senior adults at North Haven <laughs> that do not love the idea of their pastor cussing or on church letterhead. Okay, hmm. there's there's a really nice bonehead and, moment. And I'm sure they, they completely overlooked all the nice things that you said in that letter, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, I don't think they <laughs> I don't think I don't think they picked up on that. Oh man. Does this mean that you can't like run for president now because that's that's out in the open? God, I hope that's what it means. <laughs> I hope I hope that's off the table. Oh man. Okay. All right. That's uh, a very a very good answer. Um <laughs> I don't know uh, that that's what I was going for. Yeah. Well, well, you nailed it, buddy. Well, it happened um, and I did it. And yeah. everyone knows I did it. <laughs> and even more know now. So. And now, yeah. Yeah. Uh okay. So Second question would be, what is one fear that you have in ministry? What are you afraid of? I'm afraid that I won't get to do it anymore. Um, mm. So over the last year, the pandemic, uh, the real the real terrible sort of crises with my children's minister that played out right before the pandemic, my biggest, my biggest, oh, when then we had, you know, someone that was responsible for 42% of my church budget passed away without leaving anything to the church. Wow. Um, so this, you know, we had some real crises that we had to, to face this last, last really about 20 months. Um, and my, my biggest fear, the one that kept me up at night is like, you know, what if, what if my church fails? Uh, hmm. my people will be fine. They'll, they'll end up at other good churches. <laughs> right. I'm, just I'm just worried about me. What if, <laughs> you know, what if I don't get to do this anymore? Yeah. Um, what if, you know, my church just says, man, Jake's just too much of a cowboy. Um, he wrote, you know, a cursed word on North Haven letterhead one too many times. And he's just, <laughs> he's got to go. Um, man, what if I don't get to pastor anymore? Uh, and so that was that was a really revealing thing to me, that during the worst season of ministry that I've ever been through, um, where I was being slandered, you know, and lied about publicly in just terrible, terrible ways, my biggest fear was that I wasn't going to get to do this anymore. Mm. Um, that was a really enlightening. It was a really enlightening time. Yeah. For me. Um, I also want to say one of the ways dealing with trauma, I took a, I took a month of leave last year uh, during November. I, could, I just, Lord help me. I couldn't do it anymore. I got really unhealthy um, and I needed to take a break. And my church gave me a month 
And so I took a month of leave. And so if we're talking about dealing with trauma, man, that, that needs to be, that needs to be out there for sure. Yeah. Mm. That's a gracious thing for your church to have done. Yeah. They're good people. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think your fear about not doing it anymore speaks to uh, how much you, you must love it. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I do. Yeah. I yeah. do. I'm surprised some days that I do love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> How I mean, do I still love it? This is mainly yeah. pastors that listen to this, right? Uh, yes. Then well, everybody. Man, I don't know, but okay. Yeah, who knows? Anyway, any pastor out there knows the irony of that statement. You know, we yeah. love this. It's the best job in the world. It's terrible sometimes, and people can be really mean. <laughs> Oh, but my biggest fear is that I'm not going to be in a position for these people to be mean to me anymore. <laughs> oh, what is wrong with me? Yeah, I, uh, that out. I, I say that I, I feel as uh, I am as captive to this work as I am captivated by it. Um, oh, man. Isn't, isn't that good, man? I've been, waiting to, good. I've been waiting to use that all week. <laughs> It's That's the, really uh, good. It's I the see prophet. it written on your hand there. <laughs> it's the prophet Jeremiah, though, who says, you know, I've resolved not to speak anymore, and I feel my bones like a fire, and I have to let it out. Uh. It's like, oh, this job is torturous some days, and it's the it's it's for me. I love it. Mm, I love it. Beautiful. Okay. Beautiful. All right, man. <laughs> man, this well, has been a learning, learning for me. There are things coming out of my mouth today that I didn't even know until I said them. It's called external <laughs> processing, Paul. It's dangerous. <laughs> well, I'm I'm happy to help you uh, externally process. Um, last but but not least, uh, and and I'm sure there is a a world full of responses that that could be uh, for this question. But uh, what is one thing you completely rock in ministry? One thing you do well? <laughs> I think I'm honest. <laughs> I think that uh, this conversation completely proves that. Whether that's uh, a virtue or a vice is still perhaps <laughs> a worthy discussion in the context. Well, um, we'll see. But, we'll see what the reaction uh, to yeah. you, uh, to your your presence on the podcast is. And, we'll and see. Uh, but no, you know. I, I think I think I'm I think I'm honest. Uh, yeah. I. Uh, I have to be able to sleep at night. Mm. Um, I've got a real, real sensitive constitution. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I'm, if I don't, if I don't speak my truth, there's a nice little uh, liberal buzzword that I hate, but, but if, <laughs> if I don't speak my truth during the day, I don't sleep at night and I know that. Mm. So, mm. so I think I've got to be honest. I love that man. And and you definitely are. That's one of the things I appreciate most about you. And, uh, and one of the things I like to would love to emulate more in myself. So uh, I'll be careful. I, <laughs> I will. I will. Uh, so, man, I, I appreciate you having it on. I love you, man. And uh, and yeah, just thanks for sharing your sharing your story, because I know it, it's going to help a lot of people. I love you, Paul. I, I want to say uh, perfect. I want to make this clear too, uh, man. I'm a safe person to disclose to. If there's anybody listening to this that wants to talk, um, that is a survivor themselves. That's a pastor at a church having a real hard time. Um, man, I, I want to be—I want to be a resource uh, to anybody I can. I wrote an article for Baptist News Global this last year on suicidal ideation and pastors, 
that mm. sort of opened the door for me to get to know a lot of pastors um, that are struggling. And it has been a wealth of um, just goodness for me in my own life to make those yeah. connections. So if there's anybody out there uh, struggling with these sorts of things, uh, man, know, know that you can reach out to me, North Haven Church, Norman, Oklahoma, all my information's on the, on the website. Sweet. So, and I'll, uh, I'll include a link to the church uh, appreciate in, the, it. in the show notes and everything, man, okay. as well as to some of the articles you've written. So. Paul, I love you. Thank you love for you this. Too, this was this was good for my soul. I hope it's good for someone else's. Right. Yes, sir. We should we should do it again sometime. Let's do it again. I'm not doing the cussing one though. Uh, <laughs> I've learned I've learned my All lesson. Right. I'll find you. I'll I'll find you for the MMA episode or something. Oh Lord. Okay. Love you. Right. Thanks. All right, buddy. Bye. See you. All right. Well, what a great guy. What uh, a great pastor great conversation thank you so much uh, jacob for coming on the show man and for sharing your story and uh, i pray that it was uh, a blessing to those who heard it that could it could maybe um, give uh, some abuse survivors trauma survivors some uh, strength and some encouragement um, some knowledge that you're you're not alone hopefully you'll you'll take jacob up on on that offer to um, reach out to him and again i'll i'll post uh his information, his church's website, and his email uh, in the show notes here. Uh, and hopefully it could uh, be informative for uh, all the, the ministers out there as well. Uh, there are people in the pews every single Sunday who are um, sitting with truths that, that we don't know. And uh, they might be and feel uh, uh, ashamed to admit those and be real about those. And so hopefully this conversation uh, can help empower you uh, to be a safe and loving place for those folks. All right, y'all. Uh, that's what we got for today. So until next time, preachers, be real. <laughs>